0: If you haven't already done so, I encourage you to turn in the Word of God to the Gospel of Mark, to Chapter 1. This morning we are beginning a series that will work through Chapter 1 of what we call the Gospel of Mark. And that should go through the summer to work through this chapter. I say we call it the Gospel of Mark in part because the author is not named in the book Unlike the Gospel of Luke, where Luke names himself in the text, Mark doesn't do that. So why do we call it the Gospel of Mark? Well, from early church history, the testimony of the church fathers was unanimous that it was a man named John Mark. For instance, Irenaeus, who lives from 130 to 200 A.D., says, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter's teaching, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter— You can find many others saying essentially the same thing. John Mark is the author of this book. Who was John Mark? He is mentioned a number of times in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 12, he comes up as the son of a widow named Mary. It was in her home that the disciples frequently gathered. It was one of the possible locations of the upper room where Jesus celebrated the Last Supper. Then we learn in Colossians chapter 4 that Mark was the cousin of Barnabas, and together they traveled with the Apostle Paul on their missionary journeys. Acts chapter 13 tells us that Mark, who was younger than Paul by a good measure, was scolded by the Apostle Paul and dismissed from service. And yet it wasn't something that would have prevented Barnabas from continuing. So Paul and Barnabas actually part ways. Barnabas sticks with his cousin John Mark, and they continue to serve. Later, Paul's opinion apparently changes, whether it's because Mark changed or Paul changed, we don't know. But in Colossians chapter 4, the apostle says that Mark is, quote, useful for the ministry. And so perhaps we see in Mark what we see in all of us, that believers change and grow over time. Now, in his later life, the testimony of the church is that he came alongside of Peter and took down the things that Peter was speaking and teaching. And this came to be, among other things that are lost to us in history, came to be saved in the inspired writings of the Gospel of Mark. In fact, uh, Papias of Hierapolis, who lived from 60 AD to 130 AD, put that in perspective Paul dies probably in the 60s A.D. Papias is born during that time. So this is very early testimony. He says, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings or deeds of Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him in person. But afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter who accommodated his instructions to the necessities of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's sayings. Wherefore, Mark made no mistake in thus writing some things as he remembered them. For of one thing, he took special care not to omit anything he heard and not to put anything fictitious into the statements. In other words, like Luke, he didn't know Jesus personally, but he sat under the teachings of the apostles and by the Holy Spirit, transcribed a faithful summary. By the second century AD, Mark's gospel was universally accepted in the churches as one of the canonical books. It's notable that unlike Matthew, unlike Luke's gospel, and certainly unlike John, the reflection upon Peter's teaching is evident. If you look at Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter two, the major themes that Peter focuses on in his sermon are the major themes of the Gospel of Mark. They all tell the story of Jesus, but there are different emphases. And so that gives you some idea of who this Mark is and how he was used by the Lord to give us one of the books of Scripture. Now, with that being said, let's look at verse 1 and hear the word of the Lord beginning there. We'll read through verse 11. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, as we begin this season of looking in this sacred book, we ask that your Holy Spirit would walk with us. That you would open our eyes to see glorious things about our Savior. That you would incline our hearts to live for him in the ways that he calls us to in this account. We pray that you would be glorified in everything, for in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we enter into this book and into this introduction to the book, understand how it stands out. It's distinct from the rest of the gospel. It's been compared at times to the first part of the book of Job. Maybe you're familiar with that. In the very beginning of Job, You get a peek into heaven, you see God, you've got the devil there, and you have an insider view of what's really going on that Job doesn't have. You get a peek behind the curtain. This opening section, verses 1 through 14 or 15, scholars have different opinions on how to divide it, but this opening section, this gives you a sense from the outset of who this Jesus is. You get to hear the voice, you get to see the dove, and you're being brought face-to-face with these prophecies from the outset that the people who are standing alongside the River Jordan didn't have access to. And this sets a stage for the whole gospel. But what I want to draw your attention to first is what verse 1 does not say. Look at what it does not say. It does not say the beginning of the gospel of Mark. It says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why is that? It's because when Mark used the word gospel, he doesn't have in mind what we so often mean. He doesn't mean a category of biblical literature. He doesn't mean the beginning of a written account of the life and the ministry of Jesus. Of course, that's what his book is. But when Mark says this is the beginning of the gospel, he's using the word as it was known at the time. It was simply good news. But perhaps simple is not the way you should say it because it was reserved typically for the most momentous news. In extra-biblical Greek writings that survive to this day, when you find this word that we translate as gospel or good news... It's typically used for things like the arrival of the Roman emperor into your city. Big news. The birth of royalty. Major military victories that shape empire. And this is the word that comes to be used not only by Mark, but throughout the New Testament to describe the significance of the coming of Jesus Christ. This is good news. Now, typically, that word is used in the plural form in Greek. That doesn't always matter, but here it probably does matter. We do the same thing, even the phrase good news, S at the end. Glad tidings, plural. The word in Greek typically was in the plural. Mark chooses an unusual form, the singular, and that is as if to say, here begins the big news here it begins and it's worth asking where does it begin besides literarily in verse one it has a starting point that is unique among the other canonical gospel books think for a moment about where they begin. matthew and luke begin with the birth narrative of jesus they take us to bethlehem and what are they doing they are establishing the credentials of jesus By taking us to Bethlehem and taking us to Jerusalem and giving us genealogies about Jesus, the other gospels are emphasizing that Jesus truly is the second Adam, the one who can represent all humanity. Jesus truly is the son of David, the one who has come to fulfill all the promises given to Israel. John's gospel, where does it begin? Somewhere very different. It begins in eternity. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And there it emphasizes the deity, the divinity of Jesus Christ. Mark's Gospel begins somewhere totally distinct from the other books. And this morning, the Holy Spirit calls you to consider where this good news begins in light of what it means about Jesus for you and for other people. There is significance to this starting point, and in a sense... I would say we all start where Mark begins. There will be two main headings, and I'll announce each of them as we come to them. But first, note with me in verse 4, this is the first main heading. Where it says it begins is very plain. Twice we find these words, wilderness. So if this were a movie, the scene fades in, and you are in the Judean badlands southeast of Jerusalem. At the Jordan River. To look around, it is desert. It looks like the landscape here, not so very different. If you go out to, say, Gila Bend and look around, it's something like that. You are in the wastelands. And the scene opens on a strange figure. It doesn't start with Jesus. It starts with John. You have this figure clothed in odd garments, eating odd food. And you wonder, what is this? It seems abrupt when you realize that we are already 30 years into the life of Jesus. This gospel is about Jesus, but we miss out on so much. Mark's purpose is to prepare you to interpret the significance of Jesus in light of Old Testament prophecy. And he brings before you two prophecies in particular. These are not the only prophecies by any means about Jesus, there are hundreds. And many of them share this same theme. But here he quotes Isaiah, which would have been probably the better-known prophecy from Isaiah 40, verse 3. We'll circle back and look at that a little bit later. Also Malachi 3, verse 1. But the gist of it. Basically, these prophets, five, six, and seven hundred years before Jesus was born, said that something was going to happen. And Israel was waiting for this to happen. That a prophet was going to appear, he was going to be in the wilderness, and he was going to be an Elijah like figure. If you know anything about the prophet Elijah, who lived long before Jesus, you can see how John has formed himself or was moved by the Spirit to have many similarities. Not just his powerful preaching, but down to the camel hair garment, the leather belt, the locust, the honey. That's not random, it has nothing to do with his personal preferences. This is to signal the arrival of the long-awaited person. And this person, this prophet, was going to call Israel out for a meeting. The question is, why in the wilderness? They had a great city, one of the marvels of the world at this point. They had easily one of the most amazing structures ever built, the second temple constructed by Herod. Isn't this where you would expect the prophet to conduct a meeting? But no, it's in the wilderness. He's calling the covenant people of the Lord, not just some Gentiles over there, some pagans over there, the covenant people to the wilderness. And this is where the good news is going to begin. That raises the question, why the wilderness? Here it is very helpful to have a little bit of background about biblical symbolism. If You go back to the very beginning... When God creates human beings, He places them out of all the world in a garden. And the word means a place that is fertile and well watered, cultivated, a place where life practically grows itself, it abounds. And that was to be an object lesson for humanity about what spiritually takes place when we are in right relationship with God, with our Maker. We abound spiritually. The fruits are there. The Bible describes those fruits as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Everything the Lord delights in grows naturally when people are in right relationship with him. But the account in Genesis is that Adam sins and they are thrust out of the garden into where? Into the wilderness. And when you hear wilderness, don't Picture beautiful, untamed regions. Don't picture the upper portions of the Sierra Nevada with flowery meadows. When you read wilderness in the Bible, picture badlands, barrenness, drought, desolation, thorns, thistles, cactus everywhere. The purpose is to be, again, an object lesson. The very surroundings in which human beings then found themselves being thrust from the garden into the wilderness was to bear witness to them of the spiritual desolation that is wrought by sin. For John to call Israel out to the wilderness and then to preach to them about repentance was something of a shock. It was calling them to a reckoning. People who had many reasons to feel secure, perhaps self-righteous. We've got our temple. We know exactly what laws to follow. In fact, we've even added laws to the laws. But here, John calls them out to the wilderness, and this is a signal that we have to acknowledge the desolation wrought by any and all sin. Every person who would meet God has a time in particular When this comes home to them, whether or not that's when they are converted, maybe from a young age, you're growing up in the Lord, but there will be a time when you recognize you are a wilderness dweller. What is natural to your heart apart from the grace of the Lord, thorns, barren, and they're being called out to acknowledge that. John's baptism couldn't save anyone. He makes that clear. It's a baptism that acknowledges the promise of forgiveness, and it belongs to those who acknowledge their sin and repent and seek pardon from the Lord. And so in the first place, wilderness is a warning. But it is also a place of hope. Think back to Israel's history. Where was Moses when God calls him to lead God's people out of bondage and into blessing? He's in the wilderness, and he's been there a long time. God doesn't call Moses when he's in a big city. He doesn't call him when everything seems put together. He calls him in the wilderness, and the Lord takes his covenant people, and he brings them to the edge of the Red Sea in the wilderness, and he opens the way through the waters for them. He delivers them. Then he does that again. He brings them in the wilderness to the edge of the Jordan River, the very Jordan River that John is at now. And it's there that he promises to bless them as they walk in faith and he brings them into a land that is verdant, a a land that by all accounts in the Bible and outside of the Bible was tremendously fruitful at that period of history. The Lord positions the wilderness not just to be a place of warning, but it is the place of hope. It's the place of new beginnings if you'll go there, if you'll begin there, And then I want you to consider with whom the good news begins. And in just a moment, we're going to look carefully at Isaiah 40, verse 3. So I invite you to turn there. Isaiah 40, verse 3. This brings us to our second division. We've seen a bit of where they're meeting. With whom are they going to meet? That's the question. And it's a little bit confusing for those listening because John John says the strap of whose sandal gives the impression of a sandal-wearing person, of a human being, which would have been confusing to people who are familiar with the prophecies. In fact, when they were going out, probably many of them were not expecting a person at all the prophecies that concerned this figure this john this elijah-like figure in the wilderness are very different look with me at verse three and following a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord there's the covenant name of god yahweh which means i am the self-sufficient one the one who has everything his people need from himself. He has no dependencies. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain. And this is a summary of John's preaching, where he casts down the proud, and he lifts up the humble, And verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What did they expect to see when they went out? They expected that this was going to be what we tend to think of as the second coming. This is where the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. He's going to come down with angelic brightness, bringing judgment upon all who have not repented, and bringing everlasting life and purification to those who have believed. And they are repenting, they're practically jumping into the river because they want to be ready when the glory shows up. They want to be found right with the Lord. Today is the day of salvation, they're getting ready. And John's effect in preaching is to point to the wilderness on each side and say, this is you! Unless you repent, unless you bring forth fruits that give evidence of spiritual life, you will be found to be thorns and thistles and there's no place for you in the presence of God. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 is the other passage quoted by Mark. I don't ask you to turn there. You're certainly welcome to. But Malachi 3 verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Again, there's no mention in these passages of a human being. They're not looking for someone like a Moses. They're expecting God to show up and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the Lord of hosts but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap which by the way fuller's soap is very harsh it was the ancient world's equivalent of bleach and if you've ever gotten bleach on your hand or clothes you find it It's tremendously damaging. It's rough. And here it's saying the coming of the Lord will be like that. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And so you have to picture the bellowing of the fire as it brings that to melt. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. They were expecting the Lord to show up and to clean house. To put away all unrepentance and to somehow purify his people. And the description lends itself to a sense of urgency, of terror. This is the irony. Mark says, here begins the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In effect, from Mark's vantage, the good news begins at the fact that God has not come down to us in wrath. There will be a day for that. The fullness of the prophecy must be fulfilled. But he has come first in our flesh, even as you see in verses 7 through 9. And John preached, After me, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And Mark's point is to say, this is it, this is the fulfillment. You were expecting the Lord, and the Lord has come, but he didn't look like you expected. He's come in mercy He's come to bring salvation, and he's come with the Holy Spirit and power. John's baptism, similar to all of the other symbols under the Old Covenant, could not of themselves bring anything. It was all along Christ, the mediator of the New Covenant, who was sending forth the Holy Spirit, who was granting faith, who was preserving his people. And now that messenger of the covenant whom they love has come among them, And the Lord calls you to look upon him and to recognize his significance in this gospel. All throughout the gospel, we'll come back to that identity of Jesus until we find it on the lips even of a Roman centurion who says, truly, this was the Son of God. What is the Holy Spirit asking of you this morning? I believe there are several things that he lays before you. First, he asks you in this gospel whether or not you will go out to meet him. Many people did not, but it does say that many did. They left Jerusalem, they heeded the call, and they went and they looked honestly at what they were. A people in need of righteousness. A people in need of a righteousness that doesn't come from themselves. They wouldn't have been being baptized if they thought it could come from themselves. Baptism was a picture of their need to be cleansed. Will you not go out and meet with Christ? Will you not acknowledge that you are barren? You can't bring something truly worthy of God from yourself. The only way that will happen is if the Holy Spirit works in you. And he will not meet with anyone who will not come out to him in honesty. But if you do go out, whether for the first time seeking forgiveness or for the 500th time or for your 50th year seeking renewal and assurance... Mark's gospel testifies that God is a God who meets people in the wasteland. He is a God who meets his people, he draws them there, and he comes, remarkably, not in flaming fire, bringing judgment upon those who seek grace. He comes clothed in your flesh, looking like anyone, wearing the humblest of clothes. There's a reason why John is confused. Is this really him? I was expecting something that looks high and mighty. Christ is mighty. But he is humble. He is meek. And he calls you to look to him and to believe that he brings what he says he brings the Holy Spirit. He works faith, he preserves faith. I invite you to look with me at one more passage and then we'll close in prayer. In Isaiah chapter 35. context i'll note that this is the passage that jesus quotes back to john the baptist later on when john is in prison he's wondering is jesus really the messiah because he's struggling again he's expecting the prophecies that are described in old covenant terms to be realized automatically in old covenant terms they describe a kingdom he's looking for a king who sets up a government then on earth The prophecies in the Old Covenant that speak of the New Covenant describe the New Covenant in Old Covenant terms. When you understand them rightly, you discover that there's something even better on offer in this age that we live in. Isaiah 35, verse 1, speaking of what would come with Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. It's not talking in that time of Christ's coming that Jesus was going to bring a gigantic rain cloud. It's something far better when it describes this abundance of life springing forth this is what happens in those who walk with the Lord. A portion of it is experienced in this life, and those who walk nearest to the Lord have it the most. But it shall belong to all believers in Jesus Christ. In this sense, we might say there's early rain and latter rain. In glory, everything described here shall be yours completely. But there is a taste of it now in Christ. Going on, it says, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. We'll hear about that tonight in 2 Samuel. The cedars of Lebanon that were used to make David's palace. That was, by comparison, like how we think of the redwood forest in California today. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. These were some of the highest elevations in the land. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. John was waiting to see the glory of the Lord and the majesty, but the glory of the Lord and the majesty is Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 verse 3, therefore strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground a spring of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And the highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. When God, through John, called the people into the wilderness, he was calling them to discover that in Jesus Christ, there is fullness, there is abundance of the Holy Spirit. There is a beginning in this life. There is so much in the age to come that to miss it would be the worst mistake you ever made, by far. But to not have more of it in this life would also be a tragedy. Here begins the gospel of Jesus Christ that everyone who looks to him as the source of spiritual life has more than any Jordan River. All the land will be filled. If you look to him throughout your life, you will discover this. And if this day you feel dry, as we do at times, trust, rain comes again. He has the Spirit. It is good news for those who wait on him. Let's ask him even now for that. Heavenly Father, we, your people, are often surrounded by the barrenness and the thorns of our own creation and we look in this world and it is devastated by the enmity that we have towards others which flows out of the enmity that we have toward you we do not set ourselves this morning lord in a citadel of our own self-righteousness we depart from that and in your presence we acknowledge we need your spirit We thank you that in Jesus Christ we have the assurance of a new beginning. We thank you that he was baptized to signify his identity with us. That he would take upon himself the wrath. That he would suffer the vengeance of your justice. In order that we might experience the outpouring of your grace. We ask that you would draw others to this same hope. That you would use us as fountains of living water. As those indwelled by the Holy Spirit From us would come words of life, good news. We thank you for making us inheritors of the greatest possible blessings. Help us to live worthy of the gospel. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.